Hi guys, we are United Nations Association St. Andrews and this is our Global Politics Recap. I'm Charlie Folds and I'm going to be reporting on the protests in Iran. The protests in Iran started as a response to the death of Marsha Amani, a 22-year-old woman who was arrested in Tehran on the 13th of September. She was arrested for allegedly violating Iran's strict rules requiring women to cover their hair with a hijab or headscarf. Now, although the coroner's report denies that her death was due to the alleged officer's blows to her body, her death has caused an eruption of protests, first in Iran on September 16th, and now throughout the globe. So throughout the media, video footage has shown women setting their headscarves on fire, cutting their hair in acts of defiance in public, along with chants of women, life, freedom, as well as death to the dictator, which is a reference to their supreme leader, Ayatollah Ali Khamenei. The level of participation in these protests are entirely unprecedented, with even schoolgirls demonstrating in playgrounds and on the streets. Naz Rakabi, an Iranian climber who was praised globally for competing without her hijab in Seoul, has been a key figure in the media regarding the protests. The removal of her hijab was viewed to be an act of defiance. However, the climber has now come out and said that her hijab fell off, a statement many believe was made under duress of the Iranian authorities. The BBC and other independent media companies are barred from reporting inside Iran, which makes it difficult to get a clear picture of really what's going on compared to what's being claimed by Iran state media. Al Arabian News has reported that as of October 21st, the death toll has risen to 244, with over 12,500 people detained. However, Iranian authorities continue to heavily disrupt internet access in large parts of the country, as well as blocking messaging applications, which is making documentation and verification incredibly difficult. In terms of the Iranian government's response, initially their supreme leader came out and accused the US and Israel of orchestrating the riots. But in terms of the more practical response, Human Rights Watch have documented numerous incidents of security forces unlawfully using excessive or lethal force. And this was against protesters in 13 different cities around Iran. Tara Saperi Far, a senior Iran researcher at Human Rights Watch, states, the security forces widespread shooting of protesters only serves to fuel anger against a corrupt and autocratic government. Now, this overwhelming use of violence by the Iranian government has come under scrutiny from other governments worldwide, as well as the United Nations. In terms of the UN's own response, OHCHR said that it was very concerned about the continued violent response to the protests, as well as communication restrictions affecting phones, the internet and social media. In terms of other responses, the Secretary General Antonio Gutierrez called on security forces to stop using unnecessary or disproportionate force. And he then stated that we, the UN, underline the need for prompt, impartial and effective investigation into Ms. Masha Omani's death by an independent, competent authority. However, the UN Committee on the Rights of the Child also issued a statement on October 17th condemning the killings because the number of children killed by Iranian security forces in relation to these protests has reportedly risen to at least 23. So the UN Committee on the Rights of a Child wanted to state that they are noting that hundreds more have been injured, detained and tortured during the government crackdown. And now moving on, my name is Veronica Meyer and I'll be reporting on Russia's invasion of Ukraine. So this month started off with excitement for the Ukrainians on October 8th, when an explosion hit the Kerch Bridge, which connects Russia to Russia-occupied Crimea, both a logistical link and a symbolic link of Russian power. This bridge was an item of Putin's prestige and necessary to transport equipment and general supplies to Russians fighting in the south of Ukraine. The attack countered many assumptions by Russia, 
that Ukrainian forces would not possess the resources to strike the region. The successful result initially led to palpable excitement for Ukrainians, especially in their long-winded battles. Some include Monobank, a major Ukrainian bank, creating debit cards with images of the collapsed bridge. However, a few weeks later, Russia was able to reopen parts of the bridge, so it wasn't a lasting effect. However, many elements of this excitement have turned into fear as Russia has retaliated. On October 17th, Russia used kamikaze drones to dive-bomb Ukraine's capital, Kyiv. The attack targeted essential infrastructure, cutting electricity. The drones themselves are believed to have been supplied by Iran and are often sent in waves, leaving them difficult to see on raiders. They've hit a lot of important pieces of infrastructure in the city and have killed civilians. This attack is believed to be Putin seeking revenge for the destruction of the bridge, which was quite humiliating for him. Now to report on how far Russia has actually gotten. Russia has been able to annex four large regions close to the Russian border on the east and southern parts of Ukraine. In order to obtain control of these parts, Russia held contested referendums from the 23rd to the 27th of September. As of October 10th, the BBC has reported that Ukrainian troops have continued to progress against Russian defenses in the Kherson regions of southern Ukraine. In Donetsk, Ukrainian forces have also earned themselves a win, pushing east and taking control of the town of Liman. Across their southern offensive and in their surprise attack in the northeast, Ukraine was able to recapture more than 1,200 miles of land in the two weeks leading up to October 6th, according to the New York Times. October 27th, Ukrainian President Zelensky has condemned Russia for their crazy tactics. They are currently trying to gain control of Bakhmut, which would give Russia a valuable and symbolic victory, and access to roads to further cities. Zelensky reported Ukrainian forces holding their ground. As of October 23rd, the Office of the United Nations High Commissioner for Human Rights reported 6,374 civilian deaths, with 402 of those being children. That figure is representative of the entire conflict. It's hard to get a report of how many Ukrainian fighters have died, as there's not much information being taken on it. But as of October 27th, Ukraine Forum reports that the Russian military death toll in Ukraine rises to 69,220. And now looking at the invasion from the point of view of the United Nations, many are asking why the UN has not been doing more. However, Russia has a permanent spot on the United Nations Security Council with the power to veto. The Security Council has been completely unable to do anything about the conflict. CNBC reports that Russia has written a 310-page document to the United Nations informing them that Ukraine is going to use a nuclear dirty bomb on their own territory. Additionally, a member of Russia's Security Council has determined that Ukraine is in need of desatanization due to the country's satanic sex and radicalism. This claim was not felt kindly by Ukrainian public figures. The Security Council held a briefing on the 21st of October and reported beforehand that they would likely discuss the increase of Russian attacks following Ukraine's attack on the bridge, the potential for sanctions in response to the Iranian arms transfer, and Russia condemning the West for their double standard regarding the celebration of Ukrainian attacks on Russian infrastructure. This section is presented to you by Anna Pilgrim, Emilio Novillo, and Catherine Shrub. Since 2015, Burkina Faso has been battling and escalating waves of violence attributed to rebel fighters allied with both Al-Qaeda and ISIS armed groups. In January this year, Paul Henry Damiba, together with armed forces, had launched a coup against President Rock Kabore and appointed himself transitional head of state. On the 6th of October, Captain Ibrahim Chaore 
has been appointed as president after Damiba was removed after the country's second coup in less than nine months. At least 100 Palestinians have been killed in the occupied West Bank and East Jerusalem this year. The vast majority were shot dead by Israeli security forces and several by armed Israeli civilians. The figures show that nearly a fifth of the Palestinians killed were children, the youngest of whom was 14. In the spring, a spate of deadly attacks by Arab Israelis and Palestinians killed 16 Israelis and two foreigners, after which nightly army rapids have taken place in the West Bank as Israeli officials said they would aggressively counter a growing terrorism threat. Palestinian officials have accused Israel of carrying out field executions, while the period also saw the worst wave of violence against Israeli in years. 125 are dead and 320 injured after a crowd crush at an Indonesian football match that happened earlier this month. The crush happened as people tried to exit the stadiums and were met with a bottleneck. Indonesian President Joko Widodo has since told authorities that security at football games should be reevaluated, and has also ordered the suspension of Liga 1 matches. Since June, 1,700 people have died due to flooding in Pakistan that has put a third of the country underwater. Diseases have exploded, millions have been displaced, creating climate refugees within their own country, as Shabazz Sharif, Pakistan's prime minister, has put it. He has said he wants climate justice from rich, polluting countries. The U.S. and China have both given millions, but more help is needed. Pakistan has refused to deal with IMF, knowing that they wouldn't be able to pay interest, nor should they have to. Sharif has stated that Pakistan is asking for fiscal space, but not through the burden of more debt. The disaster has put Pakistan at the forefront of the debate of who should be held responsible for the destruction caused by climate change. Children are dying in growing numbers in Somalia amid the worst drought in 40 years. Somalia officials and international organizations have been sounding the alarm for months about the impending famine in the region. The pressure is mounting on authorities to formally declare famine in order to facilitate an emergency response. The worst affected parts of the country are largely occupied by militants from the Al-Shabaab group. Contaminated cough syrup from India has been linked to 70 child deaths in the Gambia. This isn't the first time. India currently makes a third of the world's medicine, but is lax in regulating their pharmaceutical industry. The Health Ministry of Delhi has responded that the Gambia should have done quality control checks before consumption. However, similar instances in India and Vietnam show that this is not the importing country's responsibility solely. Haiti is facing a humanitarian crisis at the severity and extent of food insecurity, getting worse as the country is suffering acute political, economic, health, and security crises. Hunger in one of Haiti's biggest slums is at a catastrophic level. Gangs have taken control over key highways and barracks, Haiti's largest fuel terminal, leading to food and fuel deliveries being suspended. Several warehouses run by aid organizations have also been looted, resulting in the most vulnerable going without food and drinking water. October 16th through the 22nd, China held its 20th National Congress of the CCP. Xi Jinping secured an unprecedented third term as the CCP General Secretary and President. China's main foreign policy goals have stayed pretty much the same. Xi's speech at the Congress promised opening China up to the world, all while becoming more self-reliant. 
In his speech, he stressed anti-corruption, national security, and the China dream, as well as cementing his common prosperity goals. However, concerns are growing. COVID is still very present in China, and the COVID zero policy is slowing growth. It's no wonder that Chinese stocks have fallen in response to the Congress. Western countries, especially the US, have become wary of Xi's talk of increased national security and Chinese reunification. China views the US presence in Asia and lack of control over Taiwan and Hong Kong as dangerous to the CCP. For Xi, there's still the ever-present goal to meet full control of Hong Kong. Though the current one-country-two-systems arrangement isn't set to expire until 2047, there is pressure on Hong Kong to follow China's lead, though Xi has left the when and how of this decision to Hong Kong itself. The Party Congress also drove Hong Kong's stocks to a 13-year low as Western foreign policy investors get cold feet in response to China's doubling down on its political direction. Flooding in Nigeria continues to devastate the landscape and put its inhabitants at risk of displacement and threat to life. The flooding began in early summer and worsened in September and October as a result of heavy rain, climate change, emergency release of water from dams in Nigeria and Cameroon, and poor infrastructure and planning. The United Nations have reported last week that over 600 people have lost their lives as a result of the flooding, and that 1.3 million people have been displaced. The floods have affected over 2.8 million people so far, the UN has estimated, of which UNICEF have reported that 60% of those at risk are children. The Tigray War is escalating. The ceasefire, which began in March, ended two months ago. Currently, the pro-federal government troops controlled the majority of Ethiopia. All sides have committed war crimes during the conflict, and an estimated 300,000 to 600,000 people have been killed, including multiple UN guards. Many worry about the human rights violations in the region and of ethnic cleansing of the Tigrayan population. Italy's far-right leader, Giorgia Maloney, has formally accepted the job of forming the next government at the head of the country's most right-wing administration since World War II. She is Italy's first female PM, and her cabinet was sworn in yesterday. She takes over from Mario Draghi, who ran the country while it was struggling with the coronavirus and an economic crisis. Following the resignation of Liz Truss as Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, Rishi Sunak has become the Prime Minister on Tuesday this week, October 25th. In the coming weeks, Sunak is expected to address the cost of living crisis, the failed mini-budget introduced by Truss's cabinet, and soaring energy prices. Pro-democracy protests in Chad have resulted in 50 deaths and 300 injured, the UN reports. Following the death of former President Idris Deby in April 2021, Mahamat Idris Deby has temporarily assumed a presidential role, originally promising the people of Chad an 18-month transition to democracy and uncontested elections. During the national dialogue held between August and early this month to decide the country's political future, this transition period was extended to two years, allowing Mohamed Deby presidential rule until 2024. However, on October 20th, the original completion date, protesters took to the streets to protest this delay, calling for an immediate election and expressing fears that Mohamed Deby would rule undemocratically like his father had done for 30 years. In response, the government deployed tear gas and fired ammunition at the protesters, resulting in the deaths of civilians, security forces and a journalist, whilst also suspending the activities of three political parties, imposing a curfew and labelling the protests as an armed uprising. The UN's Human Rights High Commissioner, Volker Turk, deplored this violent retaliation by the government, calling for open dialogue and an end to the use of force against protesters. Finally, today, elections are being held in Brazil to elect its new president. 
Incumbent President Jair Bolsonaro is running against Luis Ignacio Lula da Silva, who was president between 2003 to 2006 and 2007 to 2011. The election is an ideological one, with Bolsonaro representing a conservative agenda against Lula's socialist one. The outcome of the election is causing concerns surrounding the Amazon and its environment, as well as gender roles and energy prices.